If you'd open your Bibles uh, to Romans 14, and I will draw your attention to the insert in the bulletin for your help, and in particular, the title of this morning's sermon, which is a better title than I've had in quite some time. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. It's not my best title. Many years ago, when I was preaching about Jacob, I used the title Harry Potter and the Dysfunctional Family, and that's my best one ever, I think, but this is a fun one. Uh, We are rapidly heading towards the end of our series in Romans, and uh, hopefully by now you are sort of aware, maybe it's been emblazoned in your mind with this yellow screen here, of sort of the three parts of the book of Romans. The first third, and they're not equal exactly, but sort of the first third uh, talks about guilt, human condition of guilt that we enter this world in. And then we see the grace of God as exercised in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the gospel. And the final third, which is really where we are now, it's how do we respond to that? A life of gratitude that is lived with thankfulness in what God has done for us in Christ. And um, we're, again, in that final third now, and we really get to sort of that practical outworking of all of that theology that we spent so much time in. And we get to see the practical outworking Of God's grace in our lives. And that really all goes back to chapter 12. And Pastor Mark kind of preached that hinge. If you remember, he drew attention to that word, therefore. Uh, So chapter 12 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And Paul's been very practical, especially right since that hinge, on the ways that this gets worked out in our everyday lives. And both pastors Mark and Adam have highlighted that the last two weeks. Mark reminded us that this has bearing upon our relationships with one another, in loving the lowly, in caring even for our adversary, and especially uh, striving for peace and unity within the body of Christ. These are the marks of a Christian. And then last week, Pastor Adam talked about the ever-popular subject of submission to authorities, governing authorities, uh, even paying taxes and being compliant citizens, which is, again, a mark of one whose trust is ultimately in God, not just here on the human plane. And then this week, we get to look at sort of how we responsibly exercise freedoms that we have in Christ. And so this is sort of a third way that um, this transformation uh, that God is affecting in us, how it gets worked out in everyday life. So if you've grown up in the church or been around the church for any length of time, you probably would have heard of these uh, two fellas. Uh, The first is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, also known as the Prince of Preachers. He's there on the left. Yeah, you're left. And then, uh, do you guys know the other fella? Any guesses? D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody on the right. And these two guys are contemporaries. D.L. Moody was known as America's Evangelist and started the Moody Bible Institute and the Moody Church and uh, many other things. Um, so yeah, these guys are contemporaries, both uh, preaching pastors at the same time. Uh, D.L. Moody here in the States and Spurgeon over in London. And allegedly, Charles Spurgeon invited D.L. Moody to an event to speak at. 
And Moody accepted. And when he came and preached, he preached the entire time about the evils of tobacco and why the Lord doesn't want Christians to smoke. Spurgeon, who, as I'm trying to portray here, was an avid cigar smoker. And he was pretty surprised at what seemed to be a cheap shot leveled by Moody to use the pulpit to condemn a fellow minister for violating an issue of conscience, Moody's conscience, so that when he was done, Moody finished preaching, Spurgeon walked up to the podium and said famously, Mr. Moody, I will put down my cigars when you put down your fork. As you can see, Moody was a heavy dude. This is a great story. I love this story. Um, We get this great picture of these two dueling ministers sort of behaving badly. In this instance, they show us an example of what not to do. How not to behave when what we might call disputable matters. Issues of conscience and how we exercise our personal liberties. So chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One's person, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One, person's con- one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So our outline, pretty clean this morning, three main points. The first is this, because of Christ, because of Christ, we have freedom in what we eat or drink or when we Sabbath rest. This is our first point here. Now, I want to just recapture a little bit of context in case you're new or you've forgotten, just to remind you of the makeup of this church in Rome. If you remember, it's primarily Gentile, right? Uh, It does have a smaller, struggling uh, Jewish-Christian makeup as well. But really the issues of the day that Paul is dealing with with this church is trying to help uh, these two different groups who come from different religious and ethnic backgrounds really unite together as one harmonious church, one people of God, one man, as Paul has called them elsewhere. And so up to this point, really the aggressors or the the trouble folks are the the Gentiles who are dealing with a bit of Gentile pride, a little bit of swagger. And Paul has had to kind of tamp this down and remind them of God's unconditional love for Israel and the way that he has been loyal to them in the past 
set aside a remnant and has a future, bright future for them as well. And now he gets into sort of the daily grind of these matters, of how these, uh, these two parties come together within the church in simple everyday matters like eating and drinking and when they worship. So I want you to think about this, though. Imagine for like 1,500 years, you, uh, as, as a God-fearing Jew, have, well, you didn't live that long, but you know, this is your tradition, uh, you have been keeping 613 laws as an expression of your faith and covenant to God. This is a long tradition. And now, and these laws generally were divided into three categories. We'll call them the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial laws. And again, I think it's important to understand this. Keeping these laws was an expression of one's faith, not the substance of one's faith, not the means of one's faith, not the basis of it. It was the expression of their faith covenant to God. And we've learned this, hopefully you've got this burned in your mind as well, uh, that the law was never meant to save. It was meant to show us our God and our need for a Savior. And thankfully, God sent a Savior. And the law that had been given was perfectly fulfilled and lived out by Jesus Christ. So God the Son takes on human flesh, lives this perfect life, obeying the law for us, And then lays his life down as a sacrifice for our sins. And raises from the dead to verify that he was who he said he was. In confession, our sins are forgiven. And in faith in his sacrifice, his righteousness is credited to us. So that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the center part of the book that we've been looking at. And the thing is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ altered the significance of the law. And that created lots of questions. So you can imagine Israelites who had grown up with generations of law observance now being told that food laws and ceremonial laws no longer require. They're optional. And you can imagine how difficult it would be to adopt this kind of change. Or so let me put it, let me bring it forward into today's experience. Let's say that this next week, the state of Alaska decided to do away with seatbelt laws. No longer required, optional. Some of you would be like, sweet, I hate that constraint, especially with the coat gets across my neck. I'd be happy to be rid of that thing. But most of you have experienced, for whatever reason, having to drive a little bit of distance without a seatbelt. And you know that feeling? Like, oh, this doesn't feel right. Something is off. Or imagine the state of Alaska decides, you know what, speed limits are overrated. Let's just get rid of them. (laughs) You guys would be a dangerous group. You know, just drive, do what you want. Drive how you want. You know, there's times you would be like, this is great. There's other times you would be like, I don't know if I should be going this fast, you know. So uh, we can kind of, or think about this. Think about like, if you've ever driven in another country, left lane driving, right side car driving. I don't think I could do either. I think I'd get nauseous. Um, Do you remember the first time when you got your driver's license? And I know some of you, this is a long time ago. You didn't have seatbelts then probably, right? (laughs) You could, and, and you left. 
in the car by yourself. And you went wherever you wanted. No one told you where to turn or to slow down or whatever else. You just drove. And there's that weird, eerie freedom. You feel like you're doing something naughty and you're just driving a car. And so the, my point is this. The first time we receive a liberty after a time of limitation, it's unsettling, right? It's unsettling. And so this new relationship to the law created a few issues for this blended church community. And the first is fairly obvious. It's, well, the issue of personal freedom. How do I use my freedom? What uh, do I continue with? What laws might I continue to keep? What freedoms might I now exercise? And how do I figure this out with my conscience? And that's really what the passage tells us here. It really comes down to your conscience on most of these things. But then the second issue it creates is this. It's the issue of what I'll call potential offense. How do we exercise God-given liberties and freedoms with one another when your conscience has led you to a different conclusion on something? So it's not just what do whatever you can do, but there's a way of living in Christian community that is deferential to one another. So again, it's no longer law-keeping by, by which we express our faith in God. But it's in trusting Christ who observed the law for us. That is the way we express our faith in God. And again, all of this instruction comes under this teaching of of Paul back in chapter 12. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And one of the ways that God is transforming us, all of us, is away from radical individualism. That is one of the primary ways that God is working upon us. That is, from just doing whatever we want to being now one church, one united church with different peoples of God, different backgrounds, different ethnicities coming together and having grace for one another in these disputable matters. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things that I think are surprising. The first one is, whose faith is weak in this passage? It's a little surprising. Uh, It's surprising here that the one who is described here with weak faith is the one who lives an unnecessarily restrictive life. It's the traditionalist, if you will, that has the weak faith. And as conservatives, when I were, if I were to ask you that question, and this is a conservative Baptist church, so that's why I'm using that term. I'm not using that politically necessarily. I'm using that about our matters of faith and belief here. As a conservative church, uh, we might hear that term, whose faith is weak, and we might think, well, it's the person you know, who lives loosely or whatever. The person who keeps more rigid laws, more, more rule-keeping, that's got to be the strong faith person, and the passage here is just the opposite. Here, it's the person who says, I can't eat the bacon sandwich. That's the person whose faith is described as weak. Why? Because they're defaulting to a system that has been outmoded simply because they were more comfortable on that traditional style. Their faith has not yet matured to allow them to live out of it, so to speak. So you could, we could think about it this way, to go back to our seatbelt rule. The person who says, I know, I know Alaska took away the law. I cannot drive without my seatbelt on. I just have to have it on. I have to. 
Or the person who says, yes, I absolutely learned to ride my bicycle, but you know, I'm keeping the training wheels on just in case. Just in case. You never know when you're going to get tipped over. Right? <laughs> so let me, what, is, you know, what does the, the passage here tell us to do? Amazingly, it tells us to accept one another. So I've brought a couple friends this morning who may help us with this. All right, first of all, we have Gimli. Someone like Gimli, let's say, who has adopted roaring fires, malt beer, ripe meat off the bone, uh, is not to look down upon his brother, what do you think? Yeah, Legolas, right? The vegan elf, we'll call him. Uh, Gimli is not to look down on him. He's not to judge him. He's not to say, you vegan elf, right? Uh, He is to accept him. Uh, And there's another issue here too, and we'll come back to these guys in a second. One of these, it's not just about food and drink and smoking a pipe or whatever, but one of the issues that's brought up here is is a day of Sabbath or a day of worship. And I kind of want to draw a little attention to this um, because I find, I don't think this is much of a dispute today. I don't think there's a whole lot of battle going on among Christians that say this has got to be a Saturday thing or a Sunday thing. Frankly, what I find mostly with Christians is we don't Sabbath rest ever. And I would like to underscore that. Uh, A Sabbath rest is a gift from God. It is a good thing. It is something he modeled. And I'll say it in one sentence. Rest is godly. And we need it. And you need it. And I encourage you to do it. if I could ask you, walk up to you, what day is your Sabbath rest? We all ought to be able to have an answer to that. It is a way that we trust and worship God. So I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to do that. So I'm not trying to pick at which day. I'm just saying, do you have a Sabbath rest? Um, another sort of central issue here, really, the really big one in all of this is, it comes down to this matter of Judgment. Judgment. The one who exercises liberties, Gimli, is not to pass judgment on one who doesn't, Leogolus. And the one who doesn't exercise some of these liberties is not to cast judgment on one who does, Gimli. And I think one of the biggest temptations, we'll get rid of these guys for now. One of the biggest temptations, I think, for mankind in general, is to moralize our preferences. I like this, therefore this is right. More than just moralizing them, we export them. I like this, this is right, therefore this is right for you. And this is only right for you. We moralize our preferences. And we're strongly inclined to judge somebody else by the shape of our own convictions. And I'll just say this kind of judgment has no place in the family of God. Verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, 
it is unclean. Okay, so we have, because of Christ and his obedience of the law for us, we have freedom to eat or drink or Sabbath rest when we want to. And because of Christ, we have freedom from judging the practices of others. And what's interesting to me is it's the reason why or the rationale for this is the same as before. It's because of what Christ does. Because Christ obeyed the law for us, we have freedoms. Because Christ is going to judge someday, we don't have to judge another. In fact, refraining from judgment of our brother and sister in Christ is, in fact, an exercise of faith, trusting God for what he needs to do. It believes that there is a God, that it's his job, his job to judge, and that he's a better judge than you are. And I think that is incredibly freeing. Uh, consider all the ways. I'm going to make a little list here just to kind of show you how big and broad this can be, disputable matters. Consider all of the ways that we could be inclined to judge one another in disputable matters. Eating meat. Okay, we'll start there. That's an easy one. I think most of us are probably through that one. I mean, our family keeps a bag of bacon bits from Costco in the, in the refrigerator all the time, and I know you do too, probably. It's like a condiment in our house. Everything's a little bit better with bacon. Okay? But eating meat might be one. Drinking alcohol, certainly another one. Smoking a cigar, like Spurgeon. A Sabbath day, when you exercise it. Uh, maybe the celebration of a church calendar or not. Some of you may, may keep a pretty strict observance to the, the historic church calendar. Some of you didn't know there was one, right? Tattoos. What is acceptable art? Music. Can Christians have guns? If so, how many? And if so, how outspoken can they be? <laughs> Schooling options. Hello. Nudge someone next to you. Do you moralize your preference and your schooling choices for your family? Do you outsource that? Politics. We can go on and on, right? We can go on and on. There are plenty of disputable matters uh, within the church. And the thing we find here is that they can largely be left to one's conscience. Why? Because Jesus will be the judge. An aspect of faith is knowing that God is judge. And I think that is very freeing. Any of you who are tempted to be a meter maid or a Karen out there or whatever, this is freeing for you to go, I don't have to make the determinations in your life. I'm not responsible for your conscience. I'm responsible to God for mine. And I think that is very freeing. And so I will say, if you're tempted to be that person going out issuing gigs for everybody else, Set down your judgment. Release that burden. God is a better Holy Spirit than you ever would be. And he's a better judge than you ever would be. And frankly, it wasn't your job to begin with. I, I want to introduce you to something that was shared with me a long time ago that I found really helpful. It's sort of thinking about these matters in sort of like four tiers. And it goes something like this. I should have put it in your notes and I didn't. There are things to decide for where we may differ. There are things to debate for. We should probably argue over some of these things. There are things to divide for. We might just say, we're not going to be good ministry partners. We're just going to hit this over and over again. And then there are things to die for. It's not all one level playing field. We need to consider 
the strata and where the issue that we're looking at lays. Now, there's, an, this, there's another um, interesting point here. He says in verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. In other words, our conscience can be a law for us. We may have a freedom to exercise something, but in the back of our mind, we really don't have a clear conscience about it, but we do so. And in that sense, we're told that that is a kind of violation. I'll give you an example of this from my life and Amy's life. A number of years ago, we traveled over to the UK and we got to tour around and see all the cool things. And one of the places we really wanted to see was Westminster Abbey. And so we went to go there and it was very expensive to get inside. It was like 60 bucks a person. And, you know, London's an expensive place, by the way. And we were like, we don't want to pay that, but we really want to see this. So we've, we found that there was a loophole. That is, if you go to the Mass that day, they'll let you in. So we're like, oh, sweet, we're going to Mass. Uh, evangelicals going to Mass, here we go. And it was very cool, and it was wonderful to, to observe and to participate in the areas that we could. But then they came to the Lord's Supper. And as we listened to the priest talk, it became very clear to us that what they were celebrating in that instance is not what we're celebrating. He talked about the real presence of Christ, okay, but not only that, but the transformation of the elements into Christ himself, the doctrine of transubstantiation that the Catholic Church teaches. And we sat there and didn't feel guilty about any level of participation except that we were a little on the cheap side. But when we got to that point, we just thought, we, we can't partake. We're, we can't join in what they're doing. It's not the same thing in our minds. So we abstain from that. So what, I guess what I'm saying is in that moment, our conscience would not allow us to take the Lord's Supper in that way because of, uh, because of what it was signaling. So there's freedom in the law, but there may be a constraint of conscience. And I think one of the things that is sort of sweet about this whole subject is, is it reminds us that we are not living in a religion of lists, much as people might think we are. Or I'll say it this way, we're not Listians, we're Christians. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. We have a dynamic relationship with the living God. And yes, he has given us his word, which is authoritative and guides us in life, but we are not living a list relationship. We're in a living relationship with the living God. Uh, I want to give you another example of this. Uh, this is also from my life, personally, um, where my conscience changed on something. So if you know my story, my family's story, I've shared this before, but I, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents grew up in Michigan, and in Michigan, uh, drinking is like the indoor winter sport. If you know anybody from Michigan, that's the way. If you're from Michigan, you're not offended. You know that's how it is. So, so my parents really grew up around alcoholism. My grandfather... Uh, recovered from it and had a wonderful sort of end stage of his life. My aunt did not. Uh, she died of end stage alcoholism. She tried re rehabilitation multiple times. It was awful. It was ugly. And I did my aunt's funeral, and it was very crushing. Um, and so my life growing up, I was like, oh, I'm touching this stuff. Like, I don't want any part of it. And I had a strong conviction against it. And I held that for a long time. And I would tell you, and I was, I was proud of that, and actually that became a little bit of a problem because I think my conviction to abstain completely from alcohol because of my family's background grew from a wise course of action 
to a bit of pride, to a bit of self-righteousness. And I began to be convicted about that over time. And so uh, this might make you laugh a little bit, but my conviction changed on that uh, from absolute abstaining from alcohol. And when I graduated from Western Seminary with my master's degree, I had my first beer in celebration of that completion. So you might find that ironic, but in my heart, what I felt was I had been rejecting a grace that God had afforded me, and I was priding myself in it. And I think that was wrong. So I changed my decision. I also did a couple things. Because I had changed my conviction, I went and talked to a ministry partner here at the church. I talked to my wife about it, and I talked to my accountability partner about it. And I'm not trying to persuade any of you to do that. What I'm trying to illustrate is my conscience changed, and I wanted to listen to that. And so the point here is we are not to judge somebody else's freedom of use. I will say this. We are to address a brother or sister's issue of, of, of abuse. And even when we do that, it is not judgment. It is not condemnation. It's because we love them. It's because we love Christ. It's because we love his church. It's because we're jealous for his reputation that we would do so and confront our brother or sister. It's in love that we would do that. Now, you might think I'm already in, in sort of the deep weeds here. No, we're going to go a little bit further. Actually, deep weeds is an interesting pun. I didn't intend that, but we're going to talk about weed this morning. Uh, talk about disputable matters. I was thinking about this, and I was like, yeah, this bacon's probably not the big issue of the day. When we Sabbath rest, probably not the big issue of the day. The big issue of our day right now, especially for our younger generation, is what to do with marijuana. Is this something that we ought to participate in or not? In fact, the verse that's commonly cited is this one right here. Nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean for that person, it is unclean. So the argument from the young person is typically, hey, it's legal. It's not banned anywhere. Why can't I consider this thing, which is, I can consider this unclean or clean the same way that God does? Why can't I participate in this? So some will see this passage and go, all right, it's legalized, light up. And oftentimes the argument is a comparison, sort of a one-to-one -one comparison of alcohol and marijuana. And they will say, if, if we can uh, consume alcohol in moderation, then certainly we can consume marijuana. And that's, I think, a false argument. So here's where I'm going to come down to it. Be really clear. Christian, I don't think you can smoke pot. I don't think you can do it. Because the Bible also teaches, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And it is possible for a person to drink in moderation and not become drunk. It is not possible to smoke marijuana, especially the way it is made these days, and to not have those intoxicating effects. In other words, to smoke marijuana is to become drunk. Therefore, you're stepping over that violation. And I listed a book in your um, notes there that's written by a great guy from Western Seminary, Todd Miles. And he said, so when he was pastoring the day after the, the law was changed on marijuana, he got questions the next day. He's in Portland, Oregon, so you might expect that. Although 
man, we live in Fairbanks, Alaska. I don't even know why someone has to buy this stuff. Just drive down Phillips Field Road, you know, and you get all the smell you need. All right, so we move to our third point. We need to bring this home. We are in the weeds. Because of Christ, we have freedom in what we eat and what we drink and when we Sabbath rest. Because of Christ, we're free from judging the practices and freedoms uh, that, of, that others practice because he's the judge. And here's the last point that really cinches this all up beautifully together, and that's this. Because of Christ, we're also free from our freedoms. I don't have to exercise my freedoms. I have them, but I can lay them down in consideration of others. In fact, I am instructed to do so uh, for a couple of different reasons. Verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. That phrase hit me like a ton of bricks this week as I was studying. This is how we are to regard one another. A person for whom Christ died. That person you consider your adversary. That person with whom you disagree. That person that rubs you wrong. That person who has offended you continually. Is a person for whom Christ died. So how can we knowingly hurt them? How can we disparage them? Ignore them, write them off, cast judgment on them. How can we ridicule anyone for whom Christ died? We cannot. Verse 16, therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Again, I think this is a surprising twist. And I think Paul is saying here, you have some freedoms or some liberties that you, you feel like you can exercise do so carefully. Why? So you can maintain the goodness of it. If it's good, don't flaunt it. Don't stick it in someone else's faith in such a way that it becomes an agitation for them and a problem for them with you. Uh, if, if can right off to the side here, it's, it's sort of, again, back to Tolkien. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Uh, don't flaunt it. Don't expose it in such a way that it's problematic for others. So don't use your legitimate freedom in a way that causes it to come under fire, but also don't use your personal freedom in a way that could create a problem or an offense for another. So you may go have a meal with a friend and you're sitting down and you might love to have a glass of wine with it. You should be very considerate of who you're sitting with and ask, would it be okay with you or would that bother you? If it bothers them, then it's off the table. So Paul goes on to remind us also that these are not the main things. These are side issues, the disputable matters, not the main matter. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine 
or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So let me try to boil this down in just a couple really punchy statements, just rapid fire. Because of our commitment to Christ, we have a commitment to Christian unity. I don't want to be known for my liberties. I want to be known for my love for Christ and for his bride, the church. And I want to strive to live for peace and mutual edification. Don't flaunt your liberties. Don't use them in harmful or careless ways. Don't judge those who, share, uh, who don't share your liberties. Don't judge those who don't exercise your liberties. I am to obey my conscience, knowing that I will face the Lord as judge. I'm to refrain from judgment, knowing he is the one who will judge others. Because of the unity of the church, while I am free to exercise liberties, I'm also free from my freedom. So let's pray. Lord, we went into the weeds today, and we're grateful for the Apostle Paul uh, talking about what a transformed life looks like in community with people who have different convictions than our own. Uh, Lord, while we have liberties and freedoms, may we exercise them well as a matter of faith and conscience and consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ. May you be honored and glorified in every aspect of our life. And we remind ourselves, Lord, we will face you. We will stand before you. We will give an account of our life. And it's your judgment that matters. May that direct us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.